Hello and welcome to the Making Queer History podcast. Today we're going to be interviewing the creators of the Penumbra podcast, an amazing audio drama that I'm personally a fan of and I think all of you should check out. So, get excited. We have always existed and we are still here Telling the stories of those slumbered We won't disappear We're taking the pen into our own hands We're living, we breathe, and we keep creating Taking a stand History is queerer than you think Hello Hello Hey Hey, how are you? Good, how are you? Hey, doing okay, thank you right, Fantastic uh, First, let's just go over names and pronouns Sophie, um, she, her, sign Okay. Uh, Kevin, he, him. All right, and I'm Laura. I use she, hers. Cool. All right, fantastic. Uh, let's start by you guys talking about your project and explaining what it is for the people who don't know. Do you want me to go? Sure. Okay. Uh, our project, the Number Podcast, is a series of audio dramas uh, that has, has changed in structure rather radically since we started it. Um, I, now, basically, the way that I would describe it is that uh, the main line series is uh, the Juno Steel series, which is like a sci-fi noir cyberpunk thing that follows a non-binary bisexual detective uh, in the distant future. Uh, in season one, kind of intermixed with pilots for other potential series, and now in season two, uh, we've got mainline fantasy series uh, alongside that. Was anything significant? No, that's that's what it is. It's, it's an audio drama series. Yeah. yeah. When you give that pitch enough times, eventually you uh, solidify it. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's a funny structure because it's two. At this point, it's really two shows under one umbrella. You know, so like in a way, I feel we do ask a lot of our audience because they have to wait so long in between episodes of one continuing storyline. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're following the second Citadel storyline, I mean, how much do you have to wait? Like six weeks. Yeah, six weeks. You know, in between episodes, so that's a lot. Um, but, you know, they seem to stick around. <laughs> well, I can say that I've listened to it, and I think it's pretty impressive. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I got it aggressively recommended to me by about six people when I asked for queer podcasts to listen to. It was lovely. Oh, that's great. Yeah. That's yeah. Awesome. So, what made you, in the beginning, want to do this project? We didn't know what it was going to be when we started. Mm-hmm. Um, we weren't especially listening to podcasts at the time. We just found some old radio plays. It was like um, coming up on Halloween time of um, 2015. Mm -hmm. And um, we were listening, somebody somebody I was Facebook friends with posted a link to some old radio plays that were horror for Halloween um, from, I don't know when, like 40s? 40s, I think. Yeah, from the 40s. Um, And they were the type of audio drama that was popular then, which usually had a narrator um, and they were horror, the ones we were listening to, and we really enjoyed them, and they reminded us a little bit of the Twilight Zone, which is something that we've always really liked, and, um, so I just, I said, well, why don't we try just writing one for fun, and we'll just do it for fun, like, maybe we'll do a table reading and, like, record it, and I have a bunch of friends who are actors, and we'll ask them if they want to do it with us, and then Kevin said, oh, we could borrow some recording equipment and, like, make it sound nicer, so we did. We wrote one. That one ended up being shaken. And we recorded it. And then once we did that, we were like, oh, this would sound better with sound effects. Like, let's try to do that. 
And then we were like, let's do another one. Um, and we wrote Home. Yeah. And then we were kind of on a roll. And Kevin was like, oh, let's do something different. You know, how about Noir? Um, and how about if it's on Mars? And I was like, well, that's weird, but okay. But <laughs> <laughs> sure. So then, um, but then we wanted the main character to be bisexual because, um, you know, the Noir Private Eye is always a straight guy and we were really tired of that. So we were like, wouldn't it be great if he was bisexual? And then we thought, wouldn't it be great if the femme fatale was an homme fatale? And that's where, you know, Peter Norea comes from. And from there, and then we realized we wanted to write more of Juno Seal. And once that happened, then we started to realize, oh, what we like to do is take genre stories and put some kind of a twist on them, which often is just queering them up. Yeah. Um, And sometimes it's, you know, for example, like, in Juno Steel, it's not just that we queer it up, it's that we took Noir and put it on Mars, um, so we don't always twist it in the same way, but you can get really far changing a story by queering it up, as it turns out, like, because people keep not doing that, yeah. like, it's amazing to me how long people have gone on telling the same stories straight, <laughs> um, so you can get really far making that change. Right, yeah, I mean, like, uh, when we were first designing Juno, I feel like, I don't think this is editorializing after the fact, I feel like we had figured out we wanted an homme fatale first, and we just didn't know what, like, who or what our PI was going to be. Maybe. Right? I don't remember. So, but I remember the reason that we ended up settling on Juno being, like, the, the reason that we settled on on Juno and Nirvana's relationship as it is is because we hadn't seen anything like it mm-hmm. anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was super cathartic. Uh, uh, we found to, to see this, and once we realized that that was super satisfying for us, that feeling was definitely one that uh, we wanted to make more of, that we got kind of hooked on, right? Yep. Like, these character types always look like this. They are always, like, uh, they are always uh, straight white dudes, right? right? So when you scramble it, what, what ends up happening? And it turns out, like, the way that the tropes interact ends up creating this kind of cool alchemy. Yeah, and it, so it started, like, once we figured that out, it became a lot of putting, wanting to put ourselves into stories. Like, you know, I I don't want people to attribute anything more than selfish motives to us in some ways, because it's like, Juno is, like, a large part of the reason why he's bisexual is because Kevin had just come out as bisexual when he started writing him, and he was right. like, why don't I get to have like right. a bisexual role model and right. there are almost none right. so like he wanted to write that for himself and then like right. but yeah like uh, both and Juno and Chance being yep. non-binary like has to do with me and like wanted like I wanted to see that right. in stories like I kept not seeing it you know so that's just for me you know so we we do keep and everyone wants to see parts of themselves in stories like we know that and so we keep just selfishly doing it for ourselves in our stories, you know, like to be the change that we want to see. And it turns out there's a lot of people like us who have also wanted to see that. Um, so that's that's how the project became that. But I can't honestly say that it started out as that. That's real. And I often find that people start out with one intention and it just takes them on a completely different ride throughout the way. But um yes. I'm interested in what you're saying and saying that it's a very, like, personal thing for you guys. And since it's quite popular, it's clearly something a lot of other people want to hear. Since it's so personal for you, how does it feel for other people to be consuming this art form that is so yours? Yeah, it feels really good, and sometimes it feels really spooky. Uh, Like, uh, 
I think for the the mental health stuff especially, it's sometimes really spooky for me because even in the same way that Juno was a way of me figuring out bias, uh, a lot of the mental health issues that characters have are varying degrees of me externalizing an internal part of the monologue. Um, we had a very spooky experience for me when we were recording uh, one of our most recent Second Citadel episodes with Sir Damien, who's a very anxious knight, and he externalizes what has just sort of always been my internal monologue, and writing it down, it was very cathartic. And then when we were in the room with the actor, Matthew, who did a killer job, um, he was just the audio voice of this internal voice, and hearing it totally expressed was uh, very strange. It was a little bit out of body. But then when people relate to it, it feels uh, like, it feels like, oh, I'm not alone in feeling this way. That infects the nature of a lot of these insecurities. They make you feel like you're on your own. Yeah. Um, and showing them to other people and having them have this like moment of recognition of, oh, I think that all the time too. I'm glad that I'm not the only one with that illusion. Yeah. No. It's, it's, yeah. it's great to, like, you do feel like when people reach out the way they often do about these characters and about these stories, you feel like such like a connection. Yeah. Like across the abyss because we're right again, like selfish motives. We're writing characters that are like, this is us. We're like there's a, in just about every single character, there's some exceptions, but almost every single character is in some way either Kevin or me. Yeah. Or sometimes both. But like all of the characters are us and so, you know, we're we're working through stuff about ourselves and then people will reach out and they'll say, Oh my god, that's me. Or I feel so attacked right now, or like, you know, because you just put into words what I always think, and then you realize, oh, everybody's, everybody, all these people out there are going through exactly these same things that we are, because we wrote down our feelings, and it turned out they were other people's feelings too. So you feel such, like, a sense of community, right. and, and connection to the other people who are out there, because it turns out they all feel the same way. That's sort of amazing, yeah. That's fantastic. I'm really glad to hear. So what obstacles have you come across as queer creators in the podcast field? Because, you know, the most po popular podcasts are generally not run by queer creators, except for obviously Night Vale, which is great, but an exception to a rule, not the rule itself. Um, that's an interesting question, um, and feel free to chime in anytime. But um, I mean, because we're indie, we don't really experience difficulty in creating things in the way that someone going through a mainstream channel would you know it's like it's not we don't have to fight with producers nobody nobody can tell us what content to produce or what not to produce because it's completely up to us like we're indie you know of course the flip side of that is it's really hard to make money because <laughs> you know there's no one to pay us money so i i wouldn't really say that you know we get resistance interestingly we we do often get resistance from people who are largely on our side yep. is kind of something that that happens a lot which is because we've made it clear that it's important to us to you know represent queer people again selfishly we do this selfishly <laughs> because it's for us we're representing ourselves you know but i think that i think really what ends up happening is that as a queer creator because you are in the minority such a weight is on you from other queer people, actually, not from the mainstream, but from other queer people who are like, oh, you're doing this? I need you to do everything for me. 
Like, I need you to, you know, bear the burden of absolutely everything I've ever wanted to see because you've said that it's important to you. Right. And people can become very angry when we don't do that, either because we can't, because we're not interested, because we haven't yet, because... Because it would take a lot of research to understand it perspective that's not our own or whatever we'll right. get around to it but it was right. a lot right so you know like I, I think that we have represented a lot of different kinds of people so far and we're always working to do more of that and we do think it's really important but it's interesting because you get a lot of infighting and a lot of backlash from from our own community i mean because people are hurting and they're like starving for content yep. you know queer content of course and we are too, you know, like that's why we want to make it. But I think because there are so few people who are making it, each one of them has to bear such a burden where the community is like, oh, can I do everything I want you to do because there's no one else to do it. Whereas people don't expect so much from any given mainstream creator, you know, they just don't have those expectations. Right. When you end up, when people end up thinking of you as their last chance, uh, it, they're right. Yeah. Yeah, so that, honestly, that's what's tough, and, you know, I don't, I don't mean to, like, hate on the queer community, because that's my family, but I think it's, it's just tough, like, you end up bearing a burden, I think, as a queer creator in that way, and I think that, that's really the only, that's the only particular struggle, I think, is just the fact that there aren't that many of us, and so we have to take on that weight. I mean, but interestingly, on the flip side, like, we've never, ever experienced any sort of homophobia whatsoever. Like, directly. Ever. Right. Right, like, not not from people listening to the show. Ever. You know, and I think it might just be because people who listen to the show are are self-selected and, like, if they're not interested in this content, they wouldn't be around. So, like, no one has ever, you know, come at us and been like, this is gross that there's gay people on your show. Like, the one version of that that you sometimes see is like people saying that our characters of varying identities are kind of shoehorned in, right? That it's that is a key happen. We've seen it a few times, and it's like I guess we've been accused of tokenism occasionally. Right. Although more at the beginning. Yeah. I don't think people really say that anymore. Right. Which which is interesting because we've like it's I guess one of the things that I struggle with most when writing any given script is that balance because like you don't want to fall into tokenism. But also, there is a sense in which, like, people want to see characters that not only have certain identities, but exercise those identities, right? People get very scared when we go a while without, you know, expressing interest in a man. Mm. Um, they start to worry that our show is going straight. Uh, we've, like, received multiple comments about that. And, like, they don't know us very well. We haven't been around very long. So I sort of can't blame them. Right. Um, but I think that there's just such a burden placed by the culture around us yeah. that, like, people within our audience, our community, are scared. Yes, right? and they're really, like, they've been burned before. Yeah, totally. And so I don't, so I don't blame them for being, <clears throat> for being afraid of being burned again, right? And it's hard about the strength. So, well, that actually, yeah, that makes a lot of sense since you're an indie creator that you don't have to deal with the mainstream homophobia, but instead the queer community's inner fighting that's always, you know, going on and making things better and worse at the same time. (laughs) And that's really interesting and really honest to hear because that's not something I usually get back to those kind of questions, to be honest. And as someone who also writes, it's very different what we do. Like, I write about people from history, and I do often get 
similar demands. And it's a lot easier for me because I'm just like, oh yeah, then my next article will be about an ace person. That's cool. It'll be really easy. To- well, it's not easy to find. Christ, it's so hard <laughs> to find. But I can do that in like my next thing. But with ongoing storylines like yours, it must be significantly harder. And I want to thank you for saying that because that's something that I think is very honest and very important to say. Because you can't do everything just because there's a vacuum that needs to be filled doesn't mean that right. one person can ever fill that vacuum. Right, right. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's actually like, it took us a while to figure that out. Like, for a while we were just like, God, I feel terrible. Like, we must be doing such a bad job. Like, we must be bad people yeah. because people are so angry at us. We say this like it's obvious, you know? but it's within the last few months. Yeah, it's we, like something that we've, like, just started to figure out. Like, oh, we just can't. Like, we can't do honor and justice and tell our stories with integrity and also, like, fulfill every need for every person and represent every single type of identity in the world. Because there's so many types of people. Right. And so many types of people who are underrepresented. Like, we can't get to all of them and tell all of their stories without just, like, listing people. Like, right. you know, we don't have the space to, like, you know, we, we're still telling the story of one non-binary bisexual guy. One guy! Right. You know? And, like, we need to give him the space to honor his story. So, like, and that's going to take a long time, I hope. You know, so, like, we can't just, like, keep keep developing more characters that fast. You know, so, like, I don't know. People, I think people often think we take requests. <laughs> and we can't. Um, you know, just because it's, like, we have, to, we have to value the characters that we've already created. Right. You know, and, and do, do them justice. Right. A, a very good example of that is that, like, for a while now, uh, like, We've had people come to us periodically asking, like, you know, are we ever going to get uh, an ace character on the film, right? Uh, and the, like, the actual logistical question of how you express that in action in a long-running story uh, is not insignificant. Uh, it's one that we, and pretty much ever since someone first asked us that, it's one that we've been figuring out and we, like, finally have a solution for it. But by the time you pick a solution for it, we, like, put it on the outline and we're like, okay, so this will happen at this point in the season. And, oh, God, that's March. Uh, and by that point, people think that you've forgotten them. When it's like, we put it in at the last, at the next point, we didn't have figured out. We do listen to what you say. is important when we think it's appropriate. We do take people's suggestions. But, like, even when we do that, yeah, it's true. It's like, all right, well, you'll see that character in two years. <laughs> like, it's just, it takes such a long time. Right. You know, and then you get a lot of, like, oh, they're not listening. They don't care. You know, it's it's tough. I don't know why I'm complaining so much. Like we're very we're very fortunate. Yeah. No, no, you don't have to apologize for complaining. It's a really legitimate complaint. And, you know, it's because people have so ridiculously high expectations for all queer creators. And yeah. because the fir- the queer creator who exists has to be the best queer creator in the world because they have to go against every single straight creator that exists. Yeah. And they have to be able to stand up against that. So I don't think it's a bad complaint. I just think it's a really legitimate one that we should discuss as a community. So I thank you for bringing it up. Oh, yeah. Thank you. So what does the future of your project look like, ideally? Ideally? Mm -hmm. Oh, God. I mean, we're going to have an empire. (laughs) (laughs) So be true, real big. to 
now no concrete announcements. Yeah, we don't have any announcements yet, but we already have in the works. Uh, we're going to be telling the stories, the existing stories, in ways other than through the podcast. So that's for sure. Um, I mean, I want the show to go on for a while. Yeah. Um, you know, not I don't want it to overstay its welcome, uh, but I want to keep telling these stories for now. Um, and we have, like, a lot planned out. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I also, like, hope to branch out whether into other podcasts, but, like, to tell these same types of stories in fiction and also in nonfiction. Like, I want, I want to, now that we have more of a mission, that, as we've said, is what we start, that is still, like, I want to keep progressing with that, not always necessarily through exactly the thing with an umbrella. Um, even though that will always sort of be our home. Uh, as a, as a general rule, I feel like you and I are very impatient or restless in terms of, like, creative things, always making new things and, and like, in new directions. So, so, like, um, I don't know, a good example of that is when, for season two, we made it so the hotel wasn't a hotel anymore. Uh, we draw, we're trying to communicate, I think, in that switch that creatively is super important to us to mix things up and keep them fresh. Uh, so our future plans, even for the podcast, uh, look look weird, um, and I'm really excited for that. It's if just because I think there are mission statement, like morally, is super important to me, and also representing it in a way that feels indicative of our style, because we definitely have a style together that is different from us as individuals, which is really really cool. But getting across our mission through our style is something that I like more and more the more weird stuff we put out there. Yeah, and it's true. It's, it's like very important to us to keep changing what we do. So like the structure of season two is going to end up being quite different from the structure of season one. And then in season three, we're going to change up a lot of stuff. Yep. Um, you know, in part just for the reason of like, I don't like when shows keep doing the same thing. I hate it when shows just keep returning to the status quo. Yeah. You know, and you're like, nothing has really changed here. Like, it, that to me is too safe, yep. you know? So there's, like, a very strong impulse in me to, you know, always be ready to just, like, throw away everything, you know, to see if we can make something better. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's important to me. But, yeah, so expect, expect to see changes. Yeah, <laughs> always. Yeah. Are you worried, as your podcast grows popularity, that you'll be hit by a little bit of Arthur Conan Doyle syndrome? And have everyone want you to continue with a character that you're done with? That That's a very good question. has maybe happened to us already. <laughs> so I'm not going to be specific. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, there have definitely been things on the show that have been immensely popular with people that we aren't that excited about so that people keep saying oh when are we going to get more of this and we're like we're not really that invested and it's partially because there's I, I, it made me uh, actually it's funny to bring up Arthur Conan Doyle because I remember having a moment thinking about that where I suddenly like was like oh that that is really tough because it's like it's not even a statement that he thought the Sherlock stories were bad. It's not a statement that we think some of our stories are bad or we don't. Right. Like it's just if we don't have anything else to say. Right. <laughs> we're not gonna we're not gonna tap dance and waste your time when we feel like we have stuff to say over in this direction. And on top of that, as we've already said, not enough stuff is getting said. Period. Right. Uh, so 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 wasting that time on something that we don't feel very passionate about when we could go off exploring into the wilds and in a new direction. 
direction and find something uh, that could make you as passionate. ...with the structure of the show, which is that we're always leaving it open to the possibility of starting a new story. So we can always sort of like, you know, overlap so that like, let's say we, and this is totally hypothetical because I don't really see it coming true, but like, if I got sick of Juno Steele and I was like, hey, I'm really, I'm done with his story, right. you know, but we'd still have Second Citadel and people are already invested in that, right. you know, so that we would continue with that and start another story and get people invested in that. So like, we already, I think, have it built into the structure of our show that more than one thing can be happening. Right. So I, I do think it's very important that characters and stories should not overstay their welcome. You know, and you shouldn't say anything else about it if you just don't have anything else to say. Like, that's not going to be good for anybody. So yeah, we should just stop at that point. But I think by the time we want to stop anything, we'll probably have already started something else. And so we can just keep going with that. Yeah. What advice would you give other queer creators who are starting to enter the field? Um, I would say, uh, I have two connected pieces of advice. Um, so the first thing I'd say is, uh, like, just start making it. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't wait for some theoretical future where you're good enough to it because you're never going to feel like it's here. Um, I mean, like, we ended up, part of the reason we ended up redoing Murder's Mask was because we learned so much about writing audio drama since then that um, there were lots of parts of it that just felt poorly structured and poorly executed. And we learned so much about constructing characters and about constructing our mission statement that uh, that first story was no longer in line with what our show was all about. Right? right. That's part of the reason that I like still think it is super bizarre to go back and listen to like Shake It because it does not feel like an episode of our show at this point. It feels like some weird relic from another alternate history. Um, yeah, it's weird. But we would never have gotten where we are now if we hadn't have put it up. Right. Um, so. And it's kind of cool because like even though we don't especially love you know our oldest episodes anymore, like our audience has kind of grown with us. So like. You know, they start listening at the beginning and like they like it enough to keep going, but then they they get to where we are now. So like what they're interested in listening to develops along with our writing, which I think is kind of cool. Um, oh, sorry, I should probably go back to the advice advice on queer podcasting. But um, I I mean, yeah, like to return to what I was saying earlier, honestly, like I. I at least, and I cannot speak for all queer podcasters because maybe maybe other queer podcasters experience more backlash or more difficulty in creating what they create. As I've said, I haven't experienced any issues from the mainstream, you know, in terms of creating what I create. So, like, I don't find it necessary to give any advice on that front because it's like we're in deep. You know, the, the great thing about podcasting is that you can just do it on your own and you don't have to go through mainstream channels and you don't have to be answerable to anybody else, which is why I think you do find so many queer podcasts and why podcasting is largely so much queerer than other forms of media. It's because it's indie. So anybody can do it. And so that's where all the queer people have gone because they don't have to fight through all of those channels um, and all of those producers. Um, but so that being said, as as I mentioned, like the difficulty is often it comes from your own community and from that burden. And so the best advice I can give is just to be honest in telling the stories that you want to tell, that you think are important and that are a part of you. Because I really think that if you like as much as yes, art does have an ethical burden, you know, and representation is obviously really important. I mean, 
Dude, I don't, I'm not even going to go on about that because we know that. And as, as much as that is true, I think if, I think people maybe can find, I, I would worry that a queer podcaster specifically would find themselves too bogged down in, oh my God, like, what do other people need to see? What do I need to do for other people? And then nobody's happy. Right. Because you'll never make them happy. This is something we're learning now. Like you're never going to make everyone happy yeah. if you just try to cater to what they want. Right. So all you can do is be honest to yourself and tell the stories that are true to you, that you want to tell. And then if you're doing that, I, on a certain level, like nobody can attack you with that because how can they? It's like, I'm telling the stories that I that are me, right. you know, that are my stories, that are a part of me. Right. And, you know, like, you can't, like, you can take issue with my portrayal of a non-binary character, but, like, if I was expressing that part of my non-binary self, and that was honest to me, you know, like, you can come at me for it if you want, but I'll always be able to say to myself, but that was true to me, right. you know, like, and you'll always have that, that integrity. So I think that's the best advice I can give is like, you can't, you know, as much as you do, you do want to keep the culture in mind and you do want to be responsible and you don't want to be damaging. If you're telling the stories that are honestly true to you, if you're treating all of your characters like full human beings, always like that is, that is so crucial. And I think that we have often been successful with, with characters who experienced adversity. That isn't the adversity that we've experienced. Um, like, for example, um, with Sir Mark, who's disabled, which we are not, we are able-bodied, but, you know, we have received a lot of support from disabled fans, and I think all we did was write him as a human being. Mm-hmm. Um, not defined by this identity. Right, just, just a person with an identity that is important, does affect his life, but it's not everything about him, and he has a life, and he's a person, and he gets to be shitty sometimes, you know, he gets to behave badly, and he gets to have, you know, flaws, and he also gets to be a hero, like, he gets to do all the things that humans get to do, and so it's like, if you're telling the stories that are true to you, you're telling your stories, and you're treating your characters like humans, like, right. people can come at you all they want, but but you'll have been true to yourself, you know, and I think that's the best advice, I, that's the best advice I can give to specifically a queer podcaster who's going to feel that same burden that we right. To piggyback on that, like, I remember before this project, I would get very stuck on, like, you know, uh, the project directly before this one, that was, that was me solo, I really wanted to write a character who had some of the same, like, uh, issues with depression that I do. But what I had, what I did essentially was make a depression goal. I made a thing that was, like, characterized by depression. It was not actually a person underneath it. Mm-hmm. It was just that identity. I think if you keep on remembering that at its, at the core, you're writing stories about people. And ideally, you're writing stories about people that remind you of you so that you can express that experience. And there's a strength in that where if you are expressing your experience, kind of to your point, and somebody tells you that's not what it's like, you can at least fall back on. But it is because that's what I experienced. That's what it's like for me. Maybe I wasn't convincing. Maybe I need to work on style. Right, on my writing skills. Right. But... I know, I know that I'm not lying. Right. So what do I gain from this? Right. So like, as long as you're essentially telling the truth. That's really interesting of you to say, because the number one thing I hear from just starting queer creators, because, um, you know, I talk to a lot of queer writers because I like surrounding myself with that community, is that they feel like everything they say is too personal. 
that like every single thing that like relates to them at all. Because they're like, oh, oh no, I made this character bisexual and I'm bisexual. Am I just like portraying myself into this thing? Am I just sho- shoving myself into this character? And I just always find that really, really sad, actually, because it's something that straight, cis, white writers are always encouraged to do. They're like, oh yeah, put everything you have into your characters. But then as soon as it's queer, it's like, oh, actually, I think we need you to keep a little bit of a distance there. And I just, I'm glad you said that. Because, you know, I'm not a fiction writer, so it comes better from coming from very successful fiction writers who, you know, are doing really well. Because I think that's a very important thing that queer creators need to hear, that they can put themselves into their story. That's what you're supposed to do. That's what makes your story yours in the end. I mean, yeah, who else are you going to... You can't really put anyone else but yourself into your story. That's the thing. I mean, you can write about different people than you, and you should... But all a story is you and your own empathy. You know, this is how I would feel if I were this person. And this is how I feel. Like, you, you can only write that out yourself. So no one should ever worry. No one should ever worry that they're putting too much of themselves into a story. Especially as a, especially as a starting point. You know, like, characters should always grow away from you. And a character should not always do what you would do. But, you know, their, their inner soul is always going to be a part of you. You know, and like, there's, that's good. I think that's good. All right, definitely. Because I'm a queer history person, I do have to ask this. How does the history that you know about our community, because everyone knows like bits and parts. I know a lot of bits and parts, but everyone knows bits and parts of, you know, our history. How does that play into how you write fiction? It's hmm. a very good question. I mean, a history of storytelling and of tropes is what we think about most, mm-hmm. right? And we are, I think that you and I are both hyper-aware of, uh, like, tropes in movies and in stories regarding, like, the kinds of queerness that are acceptable to present over various, you know, periods of time and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what is uh, what is masculinity throughout the ages? What is femininity throughout the ages? Uh, when is it, like, uh, when can you not let the food touch in that capacity? When, like, types of queer coding yeah. are interesting to me, um, and, yeah, and then the way that, and the way that queer characters have been thrown under the bus, you know, and the, right. like, you know, barrier gays, and so forth, but, um, I don't know that real-world history comes into it that much. I think we tend to look at it through a pretty modern, like, contemporary lens. Yeah, I think, I think we have to look at it through a contemporary lens, but we do have a, you and I talk a lot about representations of queerness in stories throughout the ages. Yes. Right. Um, I think that... We don't talk that much about what was going on for queer people in history. Yes, but we talk about... We talk about their portrayal. Yeah. Yeah. So if you want to talk about stories... So it tracks that that's the angle that we would really take, I think. In, In fact, a lot of our stories are responses to that, right? That, like, you know, uh, Noir's kind of gross relationship with uh, queer issues forever is part of the reason that that's where we went, uh-huh. right? Um, or, you know, uh, there are, like, I'm feeling like there are more examples that I'm not thinking of. Well, you said before that, like, science fiction tends to be very aspirational. Because mm-hmm. So science fiction has had a very interesting relationship with, like, presenting an idealized version 
of, you know, uh, of open-mindedness, mm-hmm. right? Um, so that history is something that we are definitely very aware of as we're constructing our ones, right? Very roundabout way of answering your question. No, no, it was great. Um, it's really interesting for me to hear what everyone's different relationship to something that's so personal to me is. Because, you know, everyone interacts with queer history differently. Some don't even know they're interacting with it. But, you know, everyone does in the end. Something I'm interested in and something that a lot of straight creators have brought up to me when I put a hard and fast rule down, which I I generally do. I'm like, if you're a straight creator, I don't want to hear you writing about villains breaking gender roles. Yeah, I have no interest in that. And... I get a lot of kickback on that, saying, you know, well, then there are obviously bad queer people who exist, which is very, very true. Caitlyn Jenner. Um, <laughs> there are bad queer people who exist in the real world. Yeah, 100%. How do we account for that while also not adding to this history and these, like, literal forced queer villains that are from our history? So how do you have queer villains without making queerness oh, I mean, seem villainous. Oh. No, go ahead. Oh, yeah, no, I mean, I think that that is always what we try to do is, like, we, we don't we don't shy away, obviously, from having queer characters be villainous, because pretty much all of our characters are queer, so... If and, we a, do, and a good 50% of villainous yeah, and, of just our characters. Right, so, and probably more of our characters are villainous than not. Right. So, like, if we didn't allow any of our Queer characters to be villains, then we wouldn't have any villains. Um, so, but I think that it's it's not hard to like pull apart the queerness and the villainy, like to make it clear that those are separate things, you know. And um, and and also, I find a lot of villains aspirational, um, in part because I'm shitty. <laughs> and so, like, I I love. I love to have explicitly queer villains, um, as long as, you know, they're never villainous because they're queer. Like, I, I love the existence of them, like, um, and so I would never shy away from that. Right. Um, it's just, it just needs to be clear that, like, the queer parts of them are just fine. And right. not causing any problems. Right. Um, it's just their shitty behavior that's right. causing problems. I've got, like, two micro answers to this, one of which dovetailing off of that, right, is that you've just got to be careful about where the target of, or people need to be careful in general of, about where the target of the fear or disgust is coming from, right? One of the examples I'm most interested in because it is so conflicted and weird is um, in, uh, in Silence of the Lambs, Buffalo Bill, obviously super, super infamous, the weirdest thing about that character is that the novel multiple times tries to have like psychiatrist characters come out and say, oh, you know, he's not actually trans, there are all these other issues going on. But the fact is the book still relies on descriptions of transness in a horrifying way, right? So it's trying to have its cake and eat it too. It's trying to say that this is not this kind of person. We are not like actually insulting this group. People, but the horror still relies. But the horror stems from depictions of of trans people, right? So that doesn't fly, right? The the source of the horror is is the, the queerness in that case. So the first the, the first thing I think is you just got to make sure that the source of the villainy can't be that. Like we're working on 
a character right now who some of the things about them that are kind of gender bendy are also supposed to be really cool and just the things about them that are horrifying are other things there are plenty of horrifying things the other thing that i'll say is that i think that sometimes people focus in in terms of representation on the micro level when i think it's a lot more useful on the macro level um you've got to have a range of human experiences so i think the way that this connects to your question for me is the problem of queer coded villains would be a lot less dire if we just had a lot more queer coded characters uh because characters exactly right uh or yeah queer characters yeah but i mean like even that direct parallel of like where are the characters that are male-bodied and make wear makeup look cool right uh part of the place that juno came from was like we were talking about actually james bond was not a more like uh character but we were talking about we were talking about like there's such an image of riding off into the sunset with the girl and what if it was just riding off into the sunset with whoever right riding off into the sunset with just whoever he's interested in on that case um and you don't get that as a source of coolness uh you tend to only get that as a source of creepiness so i think if we had more of that uh the villainous depictions would probably be less hurtful less less impactful i guess does that make sense yes i also think that it is important to have characters who are queer and are either villainous or who are deeply flawed um and this again is just something about how to create characters who are humans who are full humans because i think that sometimes when people are so worried about the like the depiction of queer characters they end up i think incorrectly just wanting them all to be perfect right. and there's something that's condescending about that because con- no queer person is and so like that's why and not just queer but like any type of marginalized person so this is like for this is one thing for Juno this is also the same thing for against her mark which is like and those are i mean those are both protagonists but they're also both really shitty sometimes yeah. you know and they i really nasty to people right right um they they behave very badly often and it's not tied to their marginalized identity it's just because they're people and i i think it is i find it condescending to write like perfect angel characters because they have marginalized identities like that really bothers me because like nobody's like that how does that help i don't i don't see myself in that like i want to see people who have these marginalized identities for example being queer or being disabled or whatever else and who are allowed to be shitty so it's funny that you actually that you mentioned Caitlyn Jenner because sometimes we talk about her and we're like maybe it's a good thing that she exists because we can all agree that she's trash and like it's not, she's not trash because she's trans right she's a trans person who also is trash and there's something that is like we're, we're that's not condescending because we're holding her to the standard yes. of behaving well you know and we're not saying oh you're trans so everything you do is perfect it's like right. okay well you're a human being so we expect you to behave well and you're not living up to that right so like you're terrible right there's nothing more condescending than telling someone they're perfect just the way they are right right because no one is everybody's got something to work on right so like i think it's very important actually to write flawed characters And there's actually something I wanted to sort of expand upon upon was something you said 
you talked about how you really empathized with villains. And that's something I've done a lot of research into, especially queer people empathizing with villains because they were queer coded, and how that is given a lot of, weirdly, it's given a lot of queer creators expanded empathy in people in more dire circumstances. And it's something that, you know, you see all the time with people being like, oh yeah, my favorite Disney character, if they're queer, they say it's like Ursula, because Ursula was very obviously based off of the drag queen divine. So it gives you expanded empathy and expanded idea of like giving people more room to make mistakes because the only role models you have for yourself have made these huge mistakes. So it's sort of the other side of the perfect queer character is the worst queer character. And I guess they all both have their drawbacks, but I'm interested to ask if you have ever seen that come up in your own writing. And do you ever feel like because of this, you know, history of seeing queer characters be villains, that gives you a better position to write anti-heroes, which a lot of your characters are anti-heroes and morally ambiguous characters? Yeah, people do often say that we're very about writing anti-heroes or, or just like morally gray yeah. characters, but it's like, I don't know, how do you write, how do you write uh, stories that are not morally gray? Like, I couldn't even tell you, you know, because, and I, I think maybe it's just, it's less of a decision and more that's just how we see the world. Um, not that we don't think there are right things and wrong things that you could do, but just that you can always pick apart people's reasons and like, and people's motivations and that people are just, are really messy and really flawed. And like, we like to be true to that. Do you think that that history of that being portrayed in media for you is a part of why you think that way? I think that being a queer creator, being a queer consumer... Yeah, and always looking for that, I think. Maybe in the same way that I often say that being queer kind of makes you inherently political, like, just because that's how the world is. I think it can create empathy in that way, because you're always you're always digging around for the humanity that you can find somewhere, often in villains, often in queer-coded people, because those are the only ones you're going to find. And if you do get so used to digging for the humanity in those characters, you're digging for it everywhere. So I think that does build empathy. I'm a little wary of saying that in the same way that, like, because I don't want to imply that queer people are all magically empathetic, because we're not. (laughs) Uh, Because I want to give queer people the room to be flawed and shitty. but, But I think that it can, yeah. Like, if you're always, like, we certainly, we are always trying to dig for that humanity in whatever, like, scraps of queerness were given by mainstream media. And yeah, it does make you think twice about people's motivations and, like, their flaws. And probably, yeah, it does impact our worldview and the way we write. Sure. I buy that. Yeah, I never thought about that before. It's interesting. I'm always here to bring historical perspective on everything I talk about. I'm sorry. (laughs) Can I ask you, and you might not actually have a response to this, because... Everyone has differing feelings around it. How do you feel your labor is valued as a queer creator? Because I know that you're on Patreon and very capitalistic sense. I know that it can be a lot harder for marginalized creators 
to get anyone to pay for their content because most people are like, oh no, you should just be giving this to me. And I know as writers, that's a huge, huge problem, especially with working with corporations. They're like, oh no, but I'm giving you publicity by putting you on here. So you're, I'm really doing you a favor by having you write this article for me. And have you ever sort of faced that problem on people devaluing the labor that you put into your podcast? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's funny, this has become such a theme of our conversation, but like, it's sort of this like, burden of being a queer creator for sure and like because people are in need of something they think that they are entitled to it from us <laughs> from us specifically <laughs> and it's also really hard to communicate like how much time all of this takes and the fact that like Kevin spends a ton of time on it but Kevin, but Kevin manages to do that and also have a full time job I the amount of time that I spend on this is such that I can't have a full time job because I, I work on this. I think forty hours a week is an understatement. I think I work on yeah. I think I work on this way more than forty hours a week, which is the amount of time I'm a full time. And so I can't have a full time job, so I have a part time job, um, and that means that in order to live. I need a bunch more money than I make from my part-time job, you know, in order for me to continue living and continue making this thing, which is why we have to have the Patreon. It's not like for fun, I can live. And so, but like, I don't, it's really hard to communicate to people how much effort and how much time this takes because people still ask things like, oh, can you knock out an episode in a day? And I'm like, oh my God. Why can't you just give me this additional thing? 
And it's it's just not that it's just not that simple. Like it's just really hard to do this and live. And we make it work and we plan to continue making it work and you know, we work very, very hard on it. But I, I don't think that people really understand how difficult it is. Especially because it's not the same for every podcast. Like we happen to have a specific podcast that takes an insane amount of work. Um, not to say that other podcasters don't work very hard, because I believe that they do. But for example, if we had a talk show, we wouldn't spend as much time on it. You know, mm-hmm. it's like we would spend the amount of time that we did talking. We would record it, and then we would like edit it and be on our merry way. Mm-hmm. But with this, it's like we have to write a script from nothing. Kevin's going to write a draft. I'm going to look at it. He's going to look at it. We're, we're going to have an editing team look at it. We're going to take it through another round. That's after Kevin and I have already spent hours and hours outlining stories, yeah. you know, which we do literally all the time. I mean, we don't ever take time off. And um, and then we're going to, uh, like, all go crazy trying to schedule things with the actors. We're going to have rehearsals. We're going to have recording sessions. That's going to take a long time of everybody's time. And then I'm going to sit with it and sound design for about two solid weeks of work, of like all day work. Um, And that takes a lot of time. And I don't think that, I don't think that every podcast requires that. I mean, and it's our fault. Like we created something that required that much time. Uh, But I don't think that every podcast requires that much time. And we also have a particularly small crew. So it's very few people to take on all of these hours. Um, and that's just so hard to explain to people. And it's it's not to delegitimize their needs, but I also need our needs <laughs> to be delegitimized, you know, because we got to live. I mean, we got to live. And our audience wants us to live, otherwise they wouldn't have the content, right? <laughs> that's really real. And um, something I like to bring up often when having this kind of conversation with, you know, other queer people and, and friends is uh, this anecdote. That when I, um, when I worked in a cafe, there used to be a rule. You couldn't let anyone who didn't buy a drink use the bathroom. And I didn't like the rule because I was like, this is gross and classist and people need to use the bathroom. And I was friends with the owner of the cafe. So I had a lot less risk when I was like, oh yeah, someone didn't buy a drink, but I'm going to give them the bathroom key anyways. I don't care. So I'd give them the key. But one day, um, one of my coworkers who I was really close friends with took me aside and they're like, I know why you're doing this, but I'm not friends with a cafe owner. And if I break this rule, I get in trouble. But every time a, like, a person comes out from the street, they're like, but Laura let me in. But Laura let me do this. And I think that's something that really is very clear. And it's like, oh, because I'm doing this, you know, I'm doing it maybe for the best. You know, I'm trying to help other people. But in the end, the impact wasn't that. I was putting my coworkers in a really awful position. And I think that's something that really exists within the queer community in that a lot of queer creators are putting out their content for free. And they're like, oh, yeah, because I don't want to I don't want to, you know, make people pay for my work because I think it should be out for free. And, you know, I do believe in my own project that queer history should be accessible for free by anyone. But it's a really good precedent to set within our own community. Well, right. I mean, because the, the other the other effect of giving things away for free is that it devalues, right. literally devalues those things. Exactly. So, like, yes, queer content should be accessible. But if you make all queer creators give away their stuff for free, mm-hmm. then you're saying it's valueless. It's literally valueless. Mm-hmm. No one should have to pay money for it. Right. And we think it has a lot of value. That's mm-hmm. why we want people to pay money for it. Right. 
us periodically about how our like Patreon rewards are too expensive. Like ten dollars seems like a lot for a commentary, right? And it is. Uh, Zero dollars is also not very much for a bi-weekly forty-minute lecture. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this, there's, there's going to be a balance somewhere there. Um, and I think that unfortunately, the way that it shakes out currently, not just not due to our audience's fault, not due to our fault, just does not work out especially well for any of us. Mm-hmm. We don't get enough money to make this the best it could be. And I think that people, uh, our audience, uh, a lot of people constantly feel cheated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't blame them for that uh, because of the way that they're taught to look at their stories, right? And, they're, and the value of a story and of culture. So. Yeah. I mean, that being said, like, we are very lucky to do as well as we do on Patreon. Yes. Um, and we don't make enough money. We don't. <laughs> we don't really make enough money to make a proper living nor do we make as much as I think the show is worth, but we still make a lot more than I ever expected to make. Yeah, same. Um, and we've got a lot of really freaking generous patrons that I'm staggered that they pay the amount of money that they pay. I mean, I think it's worth it, but I'm also amazed that anyone is willing to pay it. Like, right. I'm totally blown away by that. Yeah. And very grateful um, that they give me food to eat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, no, it's it's tough. And I, I do want to do my own slip-in because I, I got a message recently and I was really surprised by it because I, I put up a post and I'm like, oh yeah, just so you know, I really like $1 patrons. They're great. They're half of my money. They're like, and they're, and this person like sent me a message and they're like, oh, I wasn't becoming a patron because I was scared to become a cheap patron. And I'm like, no, hun, <laughs> hun. The $1 patrons, at least I find, are so good to have because, like, even the lesser levels, because if they leave for whatever reason they need to leave, you're still fine. Yes. And, like, there are some patrons I have on higher levels. I'm like, if they leave, that's a lot of my income gone. Right. And that's something I have to worry about. I'm like, okay, I need to keep that in mind so I don't, you know, overestimate and, like, buy too many things for my project or, like, buy an extra book when I shouldn't. Or, like, if their patronage gets declined for whatever reason, then I'm out, like, up to $30, which doesn't seem like a lot, but it really is in the end. Right. Stacks up. No, yeah. I mean, the, the, the lower levels are really important. And then, and then also, like, that, like if, if everything could be as I would like it to be, we would just charge a dollar for the show. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, everybody would pay a dollar. Then we would be making... The kind of money I would like to be making, and nobody would be paying very much. Right. You know, because we, really what's happening is that people at like the $30 are subsidizing it yeah. for audience because they're putting on awards to make it worth it, but like really what they're paying for the other people who can't pay or won't pay. Right. So, yeah, if everyone would pay one dollar, that would be ideal. <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be something. And now that we've built all that up, can you share your social media accounts and patrons and where people can pay you? Yeah. Um, so our Patreon account is um, patreon.com slash the penumbra podcast. Um, we also do have a PayPal. We do. Yeah. What is uh, If you go to our website at thepenumbrapodcast.com, uh, there's, a link. there's a link right on the front page. Yeah. So some occasionally 
people will want to make a one-time donation if they can't make a Patreon pledge. Um, so we do have incredibly generous. Yeah, that has occasionally happened. We're very grateful for it. Um, right. So a recent one of those literally like funded an experiment that we should be announcing fairly soon. Yeah, that is true. Yeah, someone just like put money into our PayPal and we don't know who. Right. And it was wonderful, and we were like, oh, now we have the money so that we can finally do this thing we've always wanted to do. Do this thing that we've always wanted to do that people have been asking us to do. So we will see results of that very soon because of that very generous person. So we do have a PayPal. Um, and then people can always reach us on Twitter at the Penumbra Pod and um, on Tumblr at the Penumbra Podcast. They can email us, um, the Penumbra Podcast at gmail.com. We have a Facebook. We have a Facebook, the Penumbra Podcast. And um, you can also fill out a form on our website that goes right to us. Um, so lots of ways to reach us and we're around. All right, fantastic. And thank you for letting me interview you. You all had really interesting things to say. So I had really interesting questions. Yeah, this has been wonderful. Thank you. And we really enjoyed it. Yes. Thank you, Laura. Of course. We have always existed, and we are still here, telling the stories of those slumbered. We won't disappear. We're taking the pen back into our own hands. Queen.